Hello, Liturgy Guide listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another great episode for you. But first, I have a Patreon shout-out. This person wants to remain anonymous, so shout-out to Father Rediger. Wink, wink, you know who you are. Thank you for supporting us, and if you want to support us on Patreon, you can go to patreon.com slash liturgy. And just an update about the rewards for our Patreon. Those will start to be sent out again next week. We are finally back, moved into our offices again, and we can start to do fulfillment. So we apologize for the delay for anybody who's waiting for shirts or pint glasses or anything. Uh, Thank you so much for your support. This week, we are talking about the mystical body of Christ. This is an amazing conversation. It's based off of an article that Dennis wrote for Adoramus Bulletin. You can read the article at adoramus.org, and I will post a link in the show notes. So without further ado, episode three of season five of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. Hey, uh, guys. Hey, guys. Hey guys, I don't want uh, nobody. Nobody sent. So right. they got. So they got these signs on campus where yes. it's like uh, these. We love know, signs, Jesse. Love yeah, signs. and sim- and symbols. I mean, Except, uh, but these signs say, you know, they're like social distancing, you know, posters. You know, do this, don't do that, that type of stuff. And for the most part, they're all around campus, and the in the center room it says, you know, six feet right in the middle. So you got to stay six feet apart. But we also have them in Spanish. So feet in Spanish is pies, but in it looks like in English it says six pies. And every time I walk by, I'm like mm, six six pies. pies. <laughs> <laughs> and that is how you can see a sign wrong, Chris. Sometimes God gives you that sign in the liturgy, and you're just misinterpreting it. This so, is why you have to take it to your spiritual director. I see pies everywhere, Father. Pies. <laughs> Let me give you a hermeneutic for understanding. I was when I saw it, I was I was pie-eyed. Is that a thing? Yeah, <laughs> it is a thing. And you had bells on. <laughs> all right. Uh, well, that's all I got for today. So <laughs> I don't, why don't you two uh, pick up what you know? Where does yeah. that lead you to think about? And then you just talk about that. Well, you know, Chris well, is not only my friend and my hero, but also my editor. He's put me to work. Um, Adorama's Bulletin, which is this quite amazing, I wouldn't call it a newspaper. How do you describe it, Chris? Is it a... It's a bulletin? Yeah. <laughs> it's in a newspaper format, but it's not really all news. It's got all kinds of cool yeah, theological it's, uh, riches. It's, it's basically Liturgical Institute Liturgy Guys in print form. <laughs> there you so, go. No, it's not an academic uh, bulletin, although it's uh, smart and substantive. It's, um, I'd say, popular in the sense that we want uh, any average or above average or even a below average Catholic to be able to uh, to read it. So it has. That's why they story. hire me to write things. It has news. It has quizzes, game shows, frequently asked questions, articles, book reviews on uh, good liturgical renewal. 
Where would they find such content, Chris? I, I, I wouldn't even know where to look. <laughs> would so, it be adoremus.org? Adoremus. So A-D-O-R-E-M-U-S. Mm-hmm. We pray to Ad. Yeah. 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 Yeah, dig deeper in uh, Oremus. Remember that? Uh, we're, when are we going to do a podcast on our favorite etymologies? Yes, we should. Yeah. Yeah, that'll get. Yeah, well, that'll we get still have to have the, etymology of the word etymology. Yes. We learn from there. But uh, uh, Oremus uh, comes from the word mouth. Os. Uh, Oris, yeah. I think it is. Like so it literally means mouth to mouth. So when we say we worship, we're mouth to mouth with God. That's could, so. you, could you Oremus mm-hmm. some pies? <laughs> <laughs> Lord, please send us pies. Six pies. So, Two for each other. A great article in the September issue of Adoremus by uh, uh, Dennis called something like, um, isn't it, what was that you about? You called it Resuscitating the Mystical Body Theology as a Key to a Mystical Liturgy. Oh, oh yeah. That's intense. Yeah. 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 It is it. intense. Jesse, you have no idea. You might actually have to read this article. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know how I don't like to read. I know. Yeah. Anything more than what, 40 characters or whatever. If, if it can't fit on a meme, you're not interested. That's true. But uh, by way of intro, what Dennis yeah. is uh, talking about is how the theology, this ecclesiology, uh, and there, there's different models, and I'll let him explain some of them. The one that the was really uh, alive before the council was the church as the mystical body of Christ. And that's kind of suffered uh, in the immediate aftermath of the council. But what Dennis is writing is about is to, to bring back and appreciate and see clearly the church as the mystical body is kind of key to this uh, full uh, authentic participation. Mm-hmm. So other models of the church are good, but they don't quite help to make the, the case for participation like theology of the mystical body does. So it's, uh, it's excellent. Okay. Thanks, Chris. Mm. I write for Chris every so often, but rarely do I get a, a lot of like this is your best so i didn't think that way at the time. mostly you get like this is your worst it's like oh well this will fill two thousand words and get this thing <laughs> off my desk this time it seems like he really likes it so all right well but, kick us off i'm very yeah. excited about this well this is where it came from you know you you hear about participation since vatican ii last 50 years or so as people feeling included we have a lot of words like community even the last podcast, you know, the podcast we talked about, the priest saying, we baptize, the deacon saying, we baptize you, this kind of we, 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 you know, French, French, French for yes, yes, yes. But forgetting what the actual call that informed Vatican II, even more fully than this rediscovery of the people of God, was the mystical body. Pius XII writes an encyclical about it in 1943. Uh, it's there's books all over the place at this time rediscovering the mystical body of Christ. It comes from Paul. You know, Paul writes about we have many members and some are teachers and preachers. Some speak in tongues, some interpret tongues. And so it sounded like an interesting kind of biblical idea. It was nice enough. And then suddenly, as people started talking about all the other things we've talked about in the liturgical movement, that people have a right to participate, that they're not being transformed by divine life. People started to realize that the reason that lay people can participate liturgically at all is, though they're not ordained, is that they're baptized into membership in the mystical body and that this body, this mystical body, which is the continuing action of Christ in the world, the church, is actually composed of a head and members in hierarchical structure. In a parish, it would be the priest and the people. In a diocese, it would be the bishop, his priest and the people, and the whole 
church would be the Pope and the bishops and the priests and his people. And so it's got this nice, clear structure and that people can offer themselves and the things that they have authority over because of their priesthood as baptized people together with the head Christ. And then the whole congregation works and operates as a sacrament of the mystical body and not just people who happen to be at church while the priest does things that they can't do. And then they sort of watch and then wait around what all that active participation language wanted to say was you do what the priest does, except you do it as a member, a lay person. The priest does as the head with a special ordination and this power that in a sense, you know, that people don't have, but fundamentally it acts as one body and participation in the action of Christ's the head was actually what participation in liturgy meant. It wasn't a bunch of songs you like. It wasn't running here and there. It wasn't donuts. It's not necessarily being a lector or a server. Real participation at the highest level was joining yourself to the offering of Christ as a member of his body and therefore being seen and heard and entering in the dialogue of the Trinity with God the Father and then being transformed by it. That is the key, key thing. I have a question, Dennis. Yeah. Last week we talked about, you know, valid form, matter, minister, and recipients, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering how that applies to, you know, the mystical body in the sacred liturgy. If you have, you know, a sufficient number of people who aren't actively participating, who aren't, you know, I, I, I wouldn't say that they're not valid recipients because I think that would be very extreme, but... What, what does that mean for the mystical body if people aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing? Yeah, I don't think it's an either or validity question as much as it is more of a ex opere operantis question, right? So right, we were talking right. about ex opere operato last time that the work is worked. It's the action of Christ, matter and form and intention. It's there. Most people go to mass with the intention to grow in holiness. And even if they're not paying much attention, you know, they're there, they've made a choice. But if you don't know, what you're doing, what you're supposed to be doing, if you're not offering yourself as a victim with Christ to the Father, then you're not going to get as much out of it. And you can wait around and hope something happens when you receive the Eucharist, but the better you are disposed to receive the Eucharist, the more transformative that grace will be. You have thoughts you know, on that, Chris? Oh, well, yeah. When we... About this baptism question, we talked about the, the minister and the intention he has to have for the validity of a sacrament. With... with what sacramental theology says about recipients is they don't have to have the intention necessarily, but they have to have proper disposition right. so that uh, the sacraments can be received fruitfully. So if you go to mass with an improper disposition or get confirmed or married at an improper disposition, the sacraments won't work on you. you they may be validly received, but uh, you know, like we say, it's, they're not magic. You have to be pro, uh, disposed to receive the grace that is objectively coming your way for them to be to be fruitful. Now, if you apply this to this mystical body concept, it's kind of like your, you know, your um, uh, I don't know. Let's say you're trying to write something, or you're trying to you know shoot a basketball or something like, and you're trying to get your your the members of your body, your hands and your feet, you know, to do what your head says. And if they won't do that because, you know, they form bad habits or something in them, then they're not, they're not actualizing their, their full potential. And I think it's, it, that's the same for us who are cells in the mystical body of Christ. When we go to the mass, if we don't have this docility uh, and malleability to be formed by Christ, the head, then we don't receive the 
the benefit of what he's trying to do in us. You know, if we put up these obstacles and no, I'm not going to do it that way. I'm going to keep my elbow out when I shoot that free throw. Then we're, you know, we're not going to be, we're not going to be any good. And so being an active participant in the mystical body, I think requires some of that being led by the headship who is Christ acting through his minister. And so if you're going to say, we're going to interpret Vatican II properly and it's understanding what active participation means, most people think, it's okay, the poor lady who've been, you know, told to pay, pray, and obey, doing their devotions. Now they finally get to talk. Well, okay, that's a start, right? Think of it even more, though. The deep, deep invitation is because of your baptism, laity, you can enter into the same action of sacrifice, which the priest is doing, because you're both forming the image of Christ, the priest, the bishop being the head of the body, and having very particular um, theological realities, therefore. But the membership of the body isn't just waiting around for the head to do something. The membership of the body is doing in its proper way, according to its place in the church, the same thing. So in other words, the liturgy is an act of the entire mystical body and not just the head where the body waits around and does something else. And, you know, Chris is fond of saying there's only one thing God won't take from you, which is your, your free will or your love. And so when you say, yes, Father, because I have this authority as a baptized person, to enter into this Paschal mystery, I give myself to you. I plead and I offer the way the priest is pleading and offer, offering. Then what happens there is the transformation of the application of the mystical uh, body's participation in the Paschal mystery. This is what we're talking about. So although singing, speaking, lecturing, donuts, they're all good things, they're hanging around in the periphery. And the central idea is be doing what Christ is doing, even if you're a lay person, but according to your your place. Now, what happened after the council is this phrase, people of God, overwhelmed mystical body, not because of the church's documents, just the way it happened. You know, the people of God, there's a short section in, in Vatican II about people of God in Lumigentium, and um, it's not very long, actually. And as soon as they identify human beings called to the church as people of God, it says, and then they're hierarchically arranged and act as the mystical body. So even in the section on the people of God, it's immediately jumps into what these people of God do. So, you know, that whole distinction we've made before about gathering versus assembling, you know, gathering the puzzle pieces on the table in a pile is different from assembling the puzzle so you can actually see what it is. And um, the people of God thing is good. It's a biblical image. It's great. There's nothing wrong with it. But it tended to get well, it's tended to devolve. You know, I quoted in the article here, um, Richard McBrien, sort of deceased now, but a noted, I don't know if you would say dissenter, but he was um, always challenging things. And in a 19, in 2011 article, he's a priest and was a professor at Notre Dame. He said, when describing the people of God, he says, it's the church is foremost people, it is an institution, but primarily a community. The church is us. And he said this principle this people of God principle shows up in parish councils, based communities, multiplication of ministries, ministries associated with liturgy, education, and social justice. In a sense, he's right. The people of God have to go out in the world and do stuff. But the church, as people who do things without assembling as the mystical body and offering themselves as members, is missing something really, really important. And so I wanted to get this down to really think about this and write something about this. Yeah, I think, you know, it's not wrong that there's these different uh, names or perspectives or models for the church 
Um, you know, even when you look in the catechism at any of, of the sacraments, for example, it gives 10 names for baptism and 10 names for the Eucharist and six names for confirmation. And what the catechism is saying is, you know, each of those provides a certain angle and a certain insight and a certain enlightenment about what the sacrament is, but it doesn't do it completely. That's why you have to call these these mysteries of God by half a dozen different names to try to capture it. And I think it's the same with the church. So when you read Lumen Gentium or you know, I always think of uh, Cardinal Dulles's models of the church, you know, so the church is a hierarchically structured institution. The church is the people of God. The church is a sacrament. The church is the mystical body. And each of those brings particular insights. And if you, you know, if to downplay some of those brings a certain type of uh, ecclesial myopia. You're not seeing the true uh, big picture and beauty of what the church is. And, you know, what Dennis is saying, when when you started to emphasize the people of God to the detriment of, mm-hmm. in this case, the mystical body, one of the consequences was liturgical participation just became uh, misunderstood. And this is what your article says so well and demonstrates is that, I mean, the church is the mystical body was kind of the model or certainly had a, a great prominence in the decades leading up to the council with the, uh, with um, Pisa 12's uh, uh, Mystici Corporis and then Mediator Day. I mean, those are kind of sister encyclicals and to, to, to close one eye to them is to see an incomplete picture. Right. Especially since Mediator Day was, you know, put out 12 years before John the 23rd called the council. So it's, the kind of operative theology in the air and it helps you understand why, what the council actually means. And, you know, sometimes Pius XII is held up as the, the last of the old popes, you know, even though John 23rd was, he liked all the finery and the, he had the, the papal tiara and all that. But when you read Pius XII, he, he's really talking about the body. He says that the head and the body have the same nature, right? So Christ's head and Christ's body have the same nature. And this is kind of an interesting thing in response to maybe some Jansenism of the previous centuries where the priest was kind of everything and the people were pay, pray, and obey and be quiet. Uh, and then Pius XII comes along and is like, nope, he, they have participation in the same sacrifice of Christ, the head and the members. And so this sets the stage for what people can do liturgically instead of just waiting around for the priest to do things. And some of his phrases are kind of amazing. Um, he says, although the earthly priest acts as the vice regent for our savior, I guess like the, the vice president for the savior. Dennis, do you want to be the vice regent for the liturgical institute? Uh, sure. I don't know what I just, I don't know what I just, I don't know what I just actually offered you. Yeah. Well, as long as the salary's right, I'll do it. Um, <laughs> that yeah. is, uh, it's zero. So. Okay. Well, I'm in then. Um, but the point Pius XII is making, yeah, Christ, the priest is sacramentalizing Christ in a very particular way. You know, the Pope as the vicar of Christ sacramentalizes Christ in a very particular way. But then he says, the laity offer the eternal father a most acceptable victim of praise as well. In offering Christ, offering himself, he offers his members as well. So when the church offers Christ, the church offers the members as well. And, um, They won't do it against our will. So our job, lady, is to join in intentionally. So here you have your full. Give your full self. Active. Do it fully, actively. Conscious. In other words, know what you're doing. Offer yourself as a victim. So this whole 
thing that I was hoping would come out of this is that people could have a conscious knowledge of their role in the mystical body, consciously, fully, actively, and fruitfully offer themselves with the priest, and then they will hopefully be transformed more fully, which is the goal of, of all of this. And so when you see all those things in Vatican II about revising the rites, you know, toward the end, I just thought, oh, every one of these is to make the mystical body more clear, right? Okay, it's an action of Christ. All right, good. But that's an action of Christ the members, and it includes his body. Um, and that's why this participation was to be considered before all else, because this is Christ acting uh, in the world. Uh, the rubrics were to take the role of the people into account. That's paragraph 31. Why? Well, because they're acting as members of the mystical body. The rites are meant to shine forth without, you know, unnecessary duplications and have a noble simplicity. Why? So the people could signify their role in the mystical body and the priest as well. Uh, the people were supposed to increase scripture, their knowledge of scripture and hom homilies were supposed to be about liturgy and scripture. Why? So the members could enter into this mystical body, even vernacular. Why? So the members could do what they're supposed to do. Um, and even, you know, and I never really thought of this before, but even the enculturation questions, you know, Vatican II calls the genius and traditions of peoples. Why? So they know what they're doing as members of the mystical body. And then finally, it says they should be not strangers or silent spectators. How come? Well, so they don't feel left out? Well, sort of. But more importantly, so they can exercise their dignity as members of this body and offer the victim, Christ, to the Father, through the headship of the priest and make it real in their own lives. And that's the that's the goal. I would love to learn a little bit about this, um, the, this threshold of mystery, because I think this is what some people really complain about in the Novus Ordo, that, um, you know, they're being, it's, it's too much, it's too much vernacular, it's too much, you know, to, um, I guess, quote unquote, watered down. So what, what is that threshold where things mm -hmm. are still a mystery, mm -hmm. but, they're, but, they're, but you can still understand them? And I think that's the sweet spot, right? Well, remember, mystery doesn't mean obscured, like a you know, Scooby-Doo mystery. Mystery means sacrament, which means it's meant to be revealed. Now, every sacrament, by definition, is veiled to some degree because it's coming through matter, and matter always reveals and conceals. Like Christ's body didn't really reveal his divinity most of the time. But the point is, how do we make the reality of the sacramental action of Christ present most fully? And then you get prudence questions. Well, if we have Latin, then I know this is important because I don't speak Latin every day. On the other hand, you can say, well, if it's in English, then I can actually know what I'm saying and offer myself as a victim. And so you, there is this fine line of prudent deciding. Obviously, the time of the council and the years after, they really thought putting it out in the bright light was the way to make it work. Put it out there, simplify, let people say it in their own way, in their own words, and a lot of um, use of things of the time. I think as 50 years have gone by, we're sort of like, all right, it's been out in the bright light, <laughs> naked. I think it's time to dress it up in some of the finery that it needs so we know how important this thing is. And uh, holding that intention is always the problem, right? Yeah, I've always thought of it this way. I think this has been helpful for my understanding. The sacrament has to do justice to two persons. One, it has to accurately reveal the Godhead. And as Dennis was saying, it, it's, it's not going to be able to do that uh, fully. Uh, on the other hand, it has to try to do justice to the people who are participating in it. 
you know, Jesus at the incarnation, you know, didn't become, you know, a hermit or an anchorite or whatever, right? He went out so that the people could see him and through him have access uh, to the Father. And if, uh, you know, a hundred years ago, the sacramental rites maybe did justice to the revelation of God's glory, it was difficult for the people to access that. If 50 years after the council, they're not doing justice, maybe, to uh, the, the Godhead, and they've looked so much to, to the people, then, you know, we're still sort of uh, skewed. So, I, you know, Jesse, as you said, the sweet spot is to be authentic revelations of the mystery of God on the one hand, and on the other, have a... Uh, be a point of access to men and women and children who are living in 2020 so that they can encounter that mystery too. And you know, that is the, uh, was it, was it $60,000 question? Uh, that's what's so difficult. Is how do you, how do you do that in oh, such a way? That sounds like the, a good salary for a vice regent. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. And yeah. You know, I was just talking about this in class the other day because um, Augustine's music a book on music, he talks about the intellectus versus the ratio. And the ratio is a way of knowing in your kind of busy brain that tries to acquire knowledge, read things and think and go to class and blah, 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 blah. Let me learn stuff. The intellectus is the part of you that knows uh, something is awesome. So you look at the Grand Canyon and you're not studying geology. You're just saying, wow, the immensity of this thing. And then you might be excited to go read about geology. Um, but when you see the immensity of God in the liturgy because of its dignity, maybe some of what we think of as mystery is makes us understand at the intellectus level, the immensity of this. Uh, and then the ratio level is when you become a liturgiologist, right? But a liturgist should always be knowing the, the grandeur of God. So what I was trying to do with this article is to let people through their ratio, through the reading of this article, know the immensity of what they're doing. Membership in, in the body allows them to enter in to the dialogue of Christ offering them to God the Father. This is what Vatican II wanted, right? To interpret participation properly is to understand that you can offer yourself as a priest, as a victim, right? And as the, um, uh, the offerer of that victim uh, together yeah. with the head. Yeah. And by way of contrast, I mean, just sort of a democratized, uh, anthropomorphized, if that's the right word, yeah. misreading of people of God just doesn't convey that it doesn't it doesn't speak to uh kind of i don't know the dignity and the obligation that people have to become fully animated cells offering them of the mystical body of christ offering their hearts along with the heart of christ to the father it can say some things but it, it's yeah. not saying that it's certainly uh when when misread and misapplied you know, as it I had knew been. a guy from Vietnam once who said that if you fell asleep in church, there was a priest in the back who used to come and slap you, slap you up the back of the head <laughs> to wake you up. This is, I guess you can get this, in, you can do this in Vietnam. You sort of imagine, you know, people are outside and you smack them in the back of the head, go to church, go to church, go to church, right? They're gathered. But the assembling of them into the mystical body is the next move. So gathering, sure, get them from the wild, bring them together, but then hear the word, assemble as the word, say yes to the word. And then enter into the sacrifice of yourself together with Christ. That's what the mystical body does. So I'm not trying to say gathering is not good. People of God is not good. I'm not saying that. I'm saying it's gather. But then when you're gathered, assemble as Christ, act as Christ, offer yourself as a victim with Christ. 
And as in my reading, this is how you understand what active participation really means internally in Vatican II and then externally by doing the rites. And so the challenge is today, do we know that? Or, you know, proper implementation of Vatican II. So of yourself as a victim, people. It's just well, this has been like a sacramental slap in the face, I think. So. <laughs> uh, maybe we should slap a question in the face. What do you guys yes, think? Yes, and I want six pies. And six. Mm, That's the salary for the vice regent. Six, <laughs> six pies. Oh, I think, you, I think you hit the nail on the head there. Well, there we go. Good job, Dennis. So why go to the Liturgical Institute? Well, if you want to serve the church and do liturgical studies from the heart of the church, you won't find any place quite like this. This place is faithful to the magisterium, but it's a dynamic orthodoxy, not dry. And at the same time, it not only makes the faith come alive, it also empowers you to help that be the experience for others as well. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Hahn, and I want to warmly recommend the Liturgical Institute for your consideration. Pray about going and studying and sharing the richness of our living tradition. Mail call! Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? All right, uh, gentlemen, it sounds like you guys are flipping some pages and getting the research ready. Oh, yeah. We have better, like 10 seconds to prepare for these questions. Better than last week when somebody was eating Cheez-Its. I won't name this person by name, but we could call him D. McNamara. No, sorry. Uh, Dennis, Dennis M. M. Yeah, let's call oh him Dennis M. Cheez-Its, <laughs> along with butter and bacon, are proof of the existence of God. They're so good, especially the white cheddar ones. I haven't tried those yet. Mm-hmm. Where can I get where can I get those? You can get them at DMAX Super Taste <laughs> or your local. All right, all right, all right, all right, all right. We have a question from Rediger this week. Yes, Rediger is back. He's still with us after all these years. Still with us after all these. Truth be told, uh, Rediger actually asked us six questions. So this is uh, this is the sixth question. The only um, one we knew the answer to. Uh, that I can neither confirm or deny that. So he says, why is the Ascension considered part of the Paschal mystery and how is it sacramentalized in the liturgy? Wow. Talk, talk amongst yourselves. I have no idea, Chris, really. Well, I have some <laughs> idea, but you have better ideas than I, so you care. The Ascension is a part of the Paschal mystery because the church says it is. That's not a good start. So, <laughs> all right. If you have a question for us, you can. Uh, yeah, well, I'll say this, that, um, when you find the church defining the Paschal mystery, it's always suffering, death, resurrection, ascension, suffering, death, resurrection, ascension, suffering, death, resurrection, ascension. Paschal mystery means uh, to pass over, to pass through. And I suppose the the kind of the 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 firm beginning of that passage, that bridge begins with his suffering and the conclusion of that passage. The end of the bridge is landing in heaven. So the Paschal mystery is this bridge built from earth to heaven. And that is what the ascension is, is the uh, receiving or the arriving of the resurrected Christ at the right hand of God, the father. That's just where the bridge terminates. That's where the passage terminates. Um, So that's why I think that finds itself that that's a part of the, 
I don't know, the, the component parts of this passage is that it, the bridge lands in heaven. That's, that's the objective. That's the goal. That's the reconnection of heaven and earth. And what else is brought there with Jesus, his humanity, right? So he's taking our humanity to this higher place in heaven. In other words, setting the table, he's giving us, setting up the chairs that are, our humanity has been elevated and we'll eventually fully live in that. um, This is line in the liturgy of the hours, I don't know if it's origin or somebody else says that, um, you know, God promises you, you know, a new life when you walk through the waters of baptism, but he promises you even more than this. He promises you a passage through the sky. Is that to your point, Dennis, he's, he's going to take us along with him um, to to a height higher than the angels, St. Leo says. So, yeah, that's the glorious part about it. Yeah. And with bodies, right? Jesus didn't, right. his body didn't stay in the ground and he said, oh, I'm free of that. Let's get my you know, soul yeah. back to the father. He took his body back, which means we're going to rise with him. We're mm-hmm. going to be ascended with him, you know, hopefully mm-hmm. God willing. And uh, humanity enters into the spaceless, timeless <laughs> reality of heaven. It's a great mystery. Yeah. Now to the question of how is it sacramentalized in the liturgy? I mean, I guess the answer is, is on the solemnity of the ascension that is, 40 or 43 days after uh, uh, the resurrection of Christ. It, 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 to be, if it is such a constitutive part of the Paschal mystery, it does seem to be kind of an outlier, you know, kind of lost, you know, especially when it gets moved sometimes uh, off of its, I, st- I st- still get this question 15 years after the Wisconsin bishops decided to move it to Sunday is, you know, is, uh, is Ascension Thursday going to be on Thursday this year? No, no, we, we moved Ascension Thursday to Sunday and it kind of, it, it kind of, I think deflates, a little bit the significance and the importance of the ascension so what do you think dennis well i think you're right it's, we're sort of glad that all that easter complicated stuff is over and so ooh, now we can go back to ordinary time but you know this is a very old feast i, I was just looking up here and, and it was known in greek as the episozomeni the salvation meaning mm-hmm. that uh, he completed the work of our redemption by taking our humanity back to the father. And so it's got a bunch of different names over the years. Um, some in the Ascension being, he came, you know, went up by his own powers as opposed to the assumption. So he's God, he's humanity, he's taking humanity back to the father and, you know, really important thing, easy to forget, I think. Yeah. All right. Thank you for answering that question. Rudiger, I hope that that answers or is a sufficient answer. And if it's not, then find a podcast that uh, has better authorities than we do. And I bet you can't find one because we're the best. Good save, Jesse. <laughs> uh, anyway, if you want to ask us a question, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com or you can tweet us at liturgyguys or you can tweet Dennis at DMAC Super Taster. Taste more than you do. Oh, I like that jingle. Yeah, nice. That's, that's from They Might Be Giants. It's called John Lee Super Taster. It's a real mm. song. Changed my life. Made me cry. That might be my new ringtone whenever mm-hmm. you call instead of the... Now that's a podcast. Uh, anyway, uh, and if you want to ask a question of Chris, you can just email the Committee on Divine Worship for the USCCB, of which he's a consultant. And I think if you send them enough emails, they'll be like, Chris, answer this question so this person stops emailing us. Or they might just fire me. <laughs> might just fi- oh, then don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> uh, anyway, thank you and God bless. 
The Liturgy Guys is brought to you by the Liturgical Institute at the University of St. Mary of the Lake, Adoremus, Society for the Renewal of the Sacred Liturgy, and the Center for Beauty and Culture at Benedictine College. Now that's a podcast.